everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. If you're able to structure your organizational incentives to focus on learning and feedback loops, I think now you're going to see an even bigger reward for it in the form of market share, in the form of growth, in the form of being able to adapt to the world around you and leapfrogging the competition. If you think back just a few years ago, when someone asked you to name a company that delivered food, you'd probably only be able to name a few pizza joints or the local Chinese food place. But today, the world has shifted and online food delivery is a booming business. Last year alone, Grubhub sold $6 billion worth of food and the company delivers more than 500,000 meals per day. So how did Grubhub enable this massive shift to digital meal purchasing? On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, we welcomed Alex Weinstein, the SVP of Growth at Grubhub, and he explained to us exactly how the company has been able to become a market mover. From the initial education process to then focusing on customer retention, Alex and his team have been deep in the weeds of all of it, and they have built a culture of experimentation, data analytics, and a focus on ROI to stay ahead of the curve. Alex explains it all here. Enjoy this episode. Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder of Mission.org. And today, my stomach is rumbling because we're talking all things Grubhub. Alex, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. I uh, just pulled up the app earlier to be like, what should I have for lunch today? Because it's 12 o'clock and it's time to order something. What did you end up ordering? Well, I'm looking at Pad Thai right now. We have a really good Thai place down the street. That's usually my go-to, but I started to get influenced by sushi, so... If you have any advice, let me know. <laughs> I don't know the restaurants in the area, but look for those that are well-rated and look for deals. We have a ton of deals going on right now. Oh, nice. That's perfect. So you are the SVP of growth at Grubhub, correct? That's right. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your role there and what brought you to Grubhub. Sure, sure. Thank you. Um, I've been at Grubhub for a little bit over three years. My responsibility is for the consumer business. That is, how do we get more new customers to try us out for the first time? And how do we get existing ones to order with us a little bit more often and hopefully never churn? Um, this spans all aspects uh, of, of marketing. We do uh, a whole bunch of stuff in-house, uh, and, and I'd love to explore that a little bit a little bit later. Um, but, but, but it also involves a lot of work cross-functionally across the product. And when I say product, I don't just mean our apps, but the totality of the experience that the customer has um, from, from our apps to uh, the delivery to customer care, if that's ever necessary. 
Very cool. And so previously, uh, were you at, I think I saw Microsoft and eBay or what did your past life before Grubhub look like? That's right. That's right. I actually am a very strange head of marketing. I'm a software engineer by training. Um, Interesting. I've written written a bunch of code. Uh, I switched over to product management and then uh, darkness had me and I somehow ended up in marketing. Um, I I, I indeed was at eBay before this. So also for for about three years in a similar role, maybe a slightly more narrow role um, focused on customer retention marketing technologies. Very cool. Yeah, I'm sure that was great help working at a marketplace, albeit not maybe a three-sided one, but still maybe a really helpful to transition to Grubhub with that as your background. It very much was. I have to admit, um, I, I I thought I knew marketplaces after eBay. And then uh, when I started Grubhub, I discovered so much complexity. Our business, exactly as you said, is a three-sided marketplace. Um, restaurants, uh, food delivery drivers and consumers. Um, And it is a hyper-local business. People who live in Palo Alto wholeheartedly don't care how many restaurants we have in San Jose and how good our delivery network is in San Francisco, right? It has to be uh, block by block. And we have to make sure that we have good restaurant selection there, uh, good demand and and good 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 supply of drivers. Uh, Otherwise, if the three sides aren't, aren't in alignment, bad things happen. Yeah, that seems like it would be really tricky to keep all that balanced. How did how have you found um, or how have you found success keeping everything balanced? Because like you said, it's so hyper local. I'm thinking there could be a driver, you know, over in Sunnyvale and they're definitely not going to go to my local Thai place to pick up the order that I'm looking at. Yeah, this is this is where a lot of fun in this business comes from and a lot of complexity in this business comes from. We have to be really good at predicting things and predicting demand. And we have to be really good at engaging all sides of our marketplace so that drivers actually want to uh, be be online at the time when we want them to be online. And consumers end up placing additional orders if perhaps we have a little bit too much supply. And restaurateurs want to create deals. Basically, being able to influence three sides of the marketplace in a automated, personalized, hyper-local way is uh, uh, really the only way we can, we can, we can survive, right? So th- this to me is super joyful and uh, super complicated and where a lot of learning personally for me has come from. Yeah, I'm sure it's a, every day it's adjusting a little bit more and you have to keep kind of changing things up and experimenting a bit. How do I think about where Grubhub is at right now? Because to me, it seems like it's the market leader, but how many meals are being delivered? How much um, is that in dollar wise of food that's being sold? How do I think about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, we're a public company. All those numbers are, are, are public. But the Perfect. quick summary for you, we uh, deliver more than half a million meals a day. And last year, uh, we delivered more than $6 billion worth of worth of food. Uh, oh, wow. Of course, with the, with the arrival of, of the pandemic, the demand for food delivery has also increased. And uh, the expectation of all of our constituents and of, of our community, um, all of us have, have, have risen tremendously because from something that uh, restaurateurs rely on for a portion of their revenue, they now rely on um, on delivery as the majority of it. For consumers, uh, where they would perhaps order delivery occasionally, now it is the only way for them to order order restaurant food. So um, a lot of expectations on us have have, have increased throughout these 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 past couple of months. Uh, even though we already started from from being quite quite a large company with with high expectations. 
Yeah. Have you had to adjust quickly with everything going on with COVID-19? Like, what have you seen change other than increasing orders? And how have you had to pivot to kind of uh, meet the customers and meet the drivers in where they're at today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, most definitely, yes. Uh, first and foremost, we, we, we uh, began by focusing on safety of all the participants of our marketplace, right? Uh, and this began with our work on uh, personal protective equipment for our drivers. Uh, we distributed hundreds of thousands of PPE sets for free for our drivers. Uh, we invested a bunch of work into uh, enabling contactless delivery within our apps, uh, mm-hmm. which of course is, is, uh, is something that, that makes the entirety of the marketplace safer. We basically had to take our product roadmap uh, and, and in, in many ways revisit it fully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and focus on things that our community demanded of us in that moment. And similarly, we had to do something like that with marketing as well, because we had a certain strategy. And you you of course know that a lot of our effort is in making sure that consumers can get the best value on Grubhub. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you spend money on food delivery, your dollars will go the furthest on Grubhub. This this really is our brand positioning. But when COVID came, we had to take a pause. Because uh, this rewards positioning or this value positioning really had to take a step back because consumers' interests, sure, they were looking for deals, but they were looking to be safe first and foremost. And secondly, they were looking to support their community. So we had to reposition a lot of our marketing work to make it so. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm thinking that could be a trend that stays around even after everything's over, keeping that you know contactless delivery at least as an option and thinking about like how to actually prove you have the safety measures implemented and you know you're tracking that every month are you all thinking about how to scale that and keep that for the long term or is it more just a short term play until the pandemic's over um well a couple couple thoughts for you one is i don't think that we're going to be looking at at a pandemic being over and everything coming back to to normal um mm-hmm. i think we need to get used to the new normal at least until uh the vaccine is here which means that people's lifestyles their habits will be fully adjusted by then uh, and, and as such, it, it's not like we were developing a set of patches for three months and then after that we just yeah. turned those patches off. I fear not. Um, yep. But also, there's, there's meaningful positives coming from this change, right? Like any crisis, it is, it is both a danger and an opportunity. And what we've discovered is this contactless delivery, for example, besides making everyone safe, it is actually making our network a tiny bit more efficient. Because the delivery driver does not need to engage with, with uh, the consumer in person. They can just sort of drop it off, take a photo, and, and uh, keep going, right? Yep. And keep, keep, keep working, which shaves off, shaves off a small amount. But in the grand scheme of more than half a million deliveries a day, this starts adding up. And it helps our drivers earn more. Uh, and it helps our overall network be more efficient, which means food comes to consumers faster. So. There's a lot of food delivery players in the market right now. How do you create an experience that's completely unique to Grubhub where people, you know, they're like, that's where I want to order through? Yeah, uh, all, all of this in our minds has to do with differentiation. And you're exactly right. Maybe two or three years ago, uh, where consumers didn't really know much about the food delivery category, a lot of what we had to do was to educate them about our existence, which is why a lot of our marketing, a lot of our product was geared towards a first-time experience of someone who's never gotten anything delivered other than a pizza, 
Mm-hmm. Yep. It's really, that was the state of the world, right? You would ask an average consumer on the street, uh, name a couple companies that, that uh, deliver food, and they would name pizza brands. <laughs> that would have been me the, a couple of years ago, too. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, I mean, like Domino's. Totally. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, maybe maybe Chinese food, uh, if, 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 if you've ever tried it. But an average consumer didn't know that there's hundreds of restaurants that deliver to them and that they can find them on, on, on Grubhub. So that was the focus of our messaging. Um, Three months ago, even before COVID, if you asked an average consumer to name food delivery brands, they would name us and maybe a handful of our competitors. So Mm -hmm. in that environment, unprompted, right? So this is unaided awareness. Not, have you ever heard of Grubhub, but uh, uh, name name a food delivery brand. Um, So our work switched from creating awareness to driving consideration and helping consumers understand what is it that they get if they buy from us versus perhaps one of our competitors. Um, And last year, a lot of our focus has been stating this extremely clearly and delivering on that experience quite precisely. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, it is all about value for us. Um, Now that we're sort of entering a bit of a new normal with with COVID-19, we're beginning to come back to to some of this foundational brand positioning, talking about rewards and value. Uh, and uh, we have a TV spot that's actually launching today and tomorrow on national TV. We're one of the biggest spenders on 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 on, on TV in, in oh, both the category and just generally we're one of top 200 brands advertising on U.S. television that talks <laughs> about rewards and value. Mm-hmm. Um, you might be scratching your head and wondering why in the world is a digital first brand spending so much money on TV? Yes, I was uh, wondering. Tell uh, me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it actually is, is kind of counterintuitive. We, um, maybe about three years back, uh, we started scratching our heads and thinking, okay, if an average consumer doesn't really know what, what, what food delivery options are out there, how do we create that awareness? And how do we do that in a way that can confidently map to efficacy of our spend? Because creation of awareness, let's face it, is the most expensive thing a company can do. Yep, everyone wants it, but then actually implementing it and tracking it and seeing how it did seems a little tricky. It is so very tricky. And most mechanisms for doing this are actually kind of arcane, right? You do, let's say, media consumption patterns, which frankly is a large-scale survey, right, that, that uh, perhaps an agency would run and say, okay, New Yorkers, they absolutely do not watch any television. They spend a bunch of time in the subway, true, and then they're all very much on digital. Mm-hmm. So a brand that's trying to advertise in New York then would say, okay, television in New York, totally worthless. And uh, um, our consumers are probably just like the average consumer in New York. That's kind of how the line of thinking typically goes. We, despite having a general applicability product, right? Like everybody everybody wants food delivery, right? Everybody from from 18 to uh, to, to my mom most definitely could benefit from food delivery. And yet, what we discover is that the media consumption patterns of an average New Yorker are not the media consumption patterns of our consumer. Hmm. Moreover, what we discovered three years back was, um, even though our intuition was that someone who orders food delivery online is most likely an early adopter of technology. And most likely a cord cutter, right? I mean, if you're about to order food online, you, of course, are ordering your socks from Amazon. 
Yep. Uh, you, you, of course, are watching shows on Hulu Plus without any, any commercials as opposed to on, on cable television, right? Yeah. Um, of course, that intuitively makes sense, which is why we've been spending a lot of money through, through digital video channels. Because that, that intuitively makes sense. We stumbled upon a set of techniques that allowed us to, with confidence, compare uh, the efficacy of our awareness spend between digital video and the uh, digital awareness darlings of uh, uh, Hulu and YouTube and, uh, and, 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 and Facebook for, for some of the dimensions here. And what we've discovered is that the bold route of uh, digital first is actually not as efficient, not at all as efficient per dollar spent comparing oh, to the boring, stodgy, nobody <laughs> watches it cable television. Is it because of the audience that's there where, you know, the digital, like you're talking about advertising to them, they may already know about you and it's an easier conversion. Whereas the people who are keeping the TV running in the background all day, maybe actually need uh, the ad right then and there where it can kind of pull a little inception on them and they can hear about it a couple of times while they have the news on. Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the reasons. Uh, other reasons are that uh, just on a per impression basis, your digital video is dramatically more expensive. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm a nerd of machine learning and I love personalization, I don't believe that personalization can cover a 5x price difference. Yeah. It can make something 50% better, but not five times better. So how do you think about creating that culture of experimentation like you're talking about where most companies right now are probably not focusing on TV campaigns? How do you think about you know, putting a budget behind that and actually empowering a team to do that, where when I think about teams who are running with marketing budgets or just budgets in general, it's very scary to not show a great ROI because you either, you know, aren't going to get that budget again. It's a use it or lose yeah. it type of culture. It seems like every company operates that way. Maybe Grubhub doesn't. But how do you think about uh, creating good incentives and a culture of experimentation to come up with some of those projects? Uh, I think a culture where you ask for confidence in measurement for your spend is a good culture where you ask for feedback loops is is is, is a helpful culture now <laughs> uh, you can take this too far and you can start uh, trying to map everything to revenue or ebitda and uh, mm -hmm. that doesn't particularly help with uh, upper funnel marketing campaigns but the other the, the, the other extreme isn't particularly better where, um, and I see a lot of marketing organizations end up in that spot where we say we demand perfect measurement from what they call performance marketing and the brand marketing side, uh, the one where vast majority of dollars actually have to be spent to create awareness is not working to the same level of rigor and the same level of intellectual honesty with measurement. So to your question about how to how to actually create those those frameworks for the team? A couple of things come to mind. So the first one is trying to pursue incentive alignment. If people on your team genuinely believe that learning and optimality of investments for the entire team is how they get promoted, is what the company actually values, they will pursue exactly that. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a, let me give, yeah, let me hear let me an example. A, yeah. Uh, let me give you a counter example. A counter example is what happens if uh, you hire an agency to manage your Facebook spend. Yep. Have you ever heard an agency that manages Facebook spend come back to you and say, your Facebook spend is terribly inefficient. You should spend <laughs> less on Facebook. Definitely never. 
right? <laughs> I mean, that's what their incentives are. They yeah. get a portion of your Facebook spend. The same exact thing, thing happens for your TV agency. The same exact thing happens for someone who's managing your Google spend, right? If you have a bunch of outsourced agencies, each of which is responsible for one of your channels, their survival, their ability to, you know, feed their children depends on you <laughs> being able to uh, spend more money on the channel that, that they're managing for you. Of course, they don't have an incentive to try to tell you, hey, take money from Google and put it into Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Because they will personally suffer. So yeah. a setup like this creates a true misalignment of incentives. Let me contrast that with, let's say, an, an in-source structure or perhaps a structure where you have a, a, a larger performance agency that is able to reallocate dollars between Google and Facebook without personally suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in, a, in a structure where you insource, which is, which is how we operate, you're able to create a shared destiny. And you're able to say, hey, person running Facebook, um, your, your incentives are all about learning. So you have a current level of performance which is a certain level of incremental CAC and a certain level of incremental LTV, um, your goal is to improve that by this percentage over the course of the next quarter. Mm -hmm. Find some way to do so through whatever experiments that you're able to run. Um, and one of the potential outcomes is an improvement in efficiency by reduction in spend. Mm -hmm. So they're able to raise their hand and say, hey, I actually want to spend fewer dollars take away some of my budget and reallocate it over to TV because they can spend it better. I hear they have a way to spend at a lower incremental CAC than I can. And have you seen that in your culture so far of people actually being like, hey, you can have this budget and move it over here? Because it seems like a lot of times people are personally tied to their budgets and whoever has the bigger yeah. budget is, you know, the more powerful one. And I haven't often, yeah. I mean, at least in my previous days at other companies, I haven't seen people say, hey, you can have this budget and move it here. You are exactly right. A lot of our, I guess, I guess legacy from, from many of our previous jobs um, associates the size of the budget with the influence in the organization, most definitely. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. this, is, this is where the job of a leader really is, to create the right incentives and to catch people doing something right. Mm -hmm. um, if you, if you hire somebody off, off of a company that had that culture, of course, their initial inclination will not be to raise their hand and say, hey, my, my area isn't working so hot. Um, yeah. you, you need to indoctrinate them, <laughs> if that makes any sense, <laughs> yeah. into, into a, a world where it's okay to raise their hand and do it. And the way you do it is by upholding folks who do this and pointing them at them and saying, this person is doing it right and celebrating their successes and celebrating their experiments where perhaps they, 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 they didn't, didn't achieve immediate success, but they learned something. So mm -hmm. as a leader, I think you have a lot of power to create these incentives and as such um, structure what your team actually holds as valuable versus not. Mm -hmm. um, and if you point to enough examples like this, uh, you'll actually end up transforming the culture, even for, for someone who comes in from an organization that, that wasn't like that. Yeah, it seems like it would also, you know, allow someone to have wear multiple hats and kind of become like a polymath when it's like, I don't just focus on Facebook ads or I don't just focus on this kind of marketing. They get to kind of experiment with a bunch of different areas. Have you seen that happen in your organization? 
Oh, most definitely. Um, my paid social folks, I mean, just like, like, like everyone's, they were super focused on, uh, on, on Facebook. And what we've discovered uh, is, is uh, them raising their hands and being very creative and uh, being some of the first folks to ever try TikTok, for example. This was a little while back now, but uh, uh, we were one of the first handful of brands to uh, invest a lot of money into TikTok. Uh, and do large-scale experimentation with them. And um, what we've discovered is uh, if you're one of the first ones, there's very meaningful, um, effect effectively, arbitrages to be had mm -hmm. where you're able to not only get a great deal, but shape the product to your liking. And as such, yeah. get a temporary but advantage over, uh, over the rest of the, of the market. That's fun. Are, how did you think about creating your first campaign on TikTok? I mean, when your team presented this idea to you, were you like, yeah, let's do it? Or were you a little hesitant? And what was the yeah, first campaign that you had go out there versus what does it look like today? Are you still utilizing it? Oh my God, this is quite a story to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> <Good>. So, so <laughs> the team came to me and said, uh, so we're thinking about doing TikTok. My reaction at the time was, tick what? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they explained this to me and I read up a little bit about it. Uh, and my immediate reaction is, okay, you are attempting to sell a luxury product. Let's face it, ordering delivery, you're still buying food from restaurants. It is a luxury product um, in, in, in many of the cases, right? To You're trying to sell that to people who have no disposable income of their own. The average yeah, customer of TikTok at the time uh, did not just could not have their own credit card. Yeah, they have allowances, maybe. <laughs> right, exactly. So why in the world could this possibly work, you guys? How, like, our average consumer is is, is fairly affluent, and, and you're now trying to go into a completely different demo. What, how is that even remotely possible? Uh, but luckily, uh, I, 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 at that point, have already observed that uh, my team knows better than me uh, and that they have much, much better ideas than, than, than I do. Uh, and as such, we just did a test. We did a small test um, and we experimented in earnest. And surprise, surprise, they came back and they showed me the numbers and they were meaningfully better than Facebook at the time. Um, wow. So, so uh, we ended up investing more and, and that was genuine, true learning not just for the organization, but frankly, for me, there's multiple possible explanations for why it ended up being so efficient. And I can go into some of them. But the thing that, that matters to me most is that the crew felt inspired to pursue something new. They felt passionate enough about it to, to structure a test when there was no framework really out there. And uh, they were unafraid enough to basically tell me that I'm wrong and that my intuition is off. Uh, that made me feel uh, like the culture is actually right. The culture is exactly what I want it to be because uh, the opposite of that, where you're going with the highest paid person's opinion, yeah. if that makes doesn't sense. Uh, it, it doesn't work because all of our intuitions, no matter, no matter how successful we've been pre previously, we are sometimes wrong. And yep. why hire smart people if, uh, uh, if, if you don't trust them to, to try? Yeah, I think there's a good mix between trust your gut, but also don't trust it because you could be wrong and yeah, go with other people's ideas as well. So how do you think about those efficiencies that you were mentioning when you're exploring new channels like TikTok? Sure. Uh, to me, it's uh, indeed about being open-minded and experimenting with new types of media and being unafraid to try things that 
aren't immediately obviously going to work. Um, a similar type of experiment happened with Snapchat uh, a little bit earlier, where I also was convinced that this can't possibly work for the same reason. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, luckily, I, I, I again was wrong. So I guess I guess a pattern of learning is what inspired me to basically create this incentive structure for the team where they're unafraid to raise their hand and say, hey, the way we've been doing this before is, is really off. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> if you want, I'll tell you a story of a channel that's not really a channel that I guess uh, kind of formed my opinion on that topic. Yeah, let's hear it. So this is this is the story of uh, a couple of marketers that were attempting to turn a specific specific city around. As we talked a little bit earlier, uh, we can be doing super well in one city and not well at all in another city or in, in a corner of a city. So um, a lot of a lot of what what we do has to do with how do we turn a specific city or neighborhood around. This, this couple of folks, uh, their job was to turn a specific city around. And I was expecting them to uh, come to me and, and, and say, hey, I'm going to take the budget that you've, you've given me and I'm going to buy some Google ads and I'm going to buy some billboards and maybe I'm going to buy some Facebook ads. Mm -hmm. um, and what they did instead, these were two marketers. What they did instead was actually really curious. They um, experienced the product for themselves. They uh, placed a couple of food delivery orders and they came to me and they said, hey, hey I, I don't want to buy any ads, they said. Instead, whenever I was placing the order for food, there really weren't enough food photos. Hmm. So uh, I was ordering from restaurants that I haven't ordered from before. And um, I, I don't really know if their pot pie looks good. I don't really know if uh, um, their, their sushi is something that I want to try. They were kind of yep. in, your, in, your, in your position. So they said, uh, screw it. I'm not going to buy any ads. I'm instead going to hire some photographers to come into those restaurants and take the photos. Ooh. And then after that, I'm going to measure the incremental impact of the added photography and see if the efficacy of that is actually uh, comparable or high enough comparing to the efficacy of ad spend. Mm -hmm. Effectively saying, I'm going to open a brand new marketing channel. And that marketing yeah. channel is going to be photos. I'm like, okay, let's just do it. A whole brand new uh, division of Grubhub, just photography. Exactly, exactly. Um, th these two folks get on the phones, start calling photographers, start calling restaurant owners and scheduling appointments to have the photographers come in there. And that becomes basically their job for the next two months. And then they organize a real A-B test where, you know, some visitors for, for, for a, these specific menu pages see the photos and others don't. And they do some serious math to try to say, hey, here's the incrementality in here. And here's the efficacy of the spend comparing to what Google ads would be or Facebook ads would be. And they discover that those photos are actually a better way to spend marketing dollars than any actual marketing. Yeah. I, uh, I, at that point, I'm kind of floored uh, and I come to them and I'm like, okay, you guys are, are on fire. This is amazing. Let's, you know, take your thing and give it to operations and scale up this thing. And they say, no, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. This whole project sucked. We spent our entire days on the phone with restaurant owners trying to schedule appointments. We are going to make it better. I'm like, wait, what? What's going on? They say, no, no. Instead of, instead of scheduling appointments with the restaurant owners to take photos, we are going to rent Airbnbs and photo studios around town, then order food from the restaurants, bring it to those Airbnbs. Our food stylist is going to make it look good, and we're going to take photos. Oh, my gosh. 
I'm like, wait, wait, what? That's another what? level. <laughs> yeah. So my, my immediate reaction from this is, have you ever seen delivered food? It does not look good. Uh, they, 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 they obviously did, did told me to go pound sand as they, as they should have. Um, and they showed me the first photos from these experiments. Oh my God, those first photos look much better. Yeah. than anything taken in a restaurant because food stylists are really good at their jobs yep. because if you're able to control the lighting, you're able to take much better pictures. And when they actually tried it, they discovered that instead of doing two photo shoots a day, the photographer, who's the most scarce and expensive part of the whole operation, is able to do 20 photo shoots a day. Wow, that's efficient. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> As, as you can imagine, at that point, my mind was completely blown. Uh, and uh, we, we indeed operationalized this with, with folks whose sort of day job was, was operations as opposed, to, as opposed to marketing. But this was, this was the example of really learning what, what learning means. Mm -hmm. Do you kind of pick the markets to do that in? Or you kind of see a market maybe not doing so well, and those are the ones that you focus on getting the good imagery for versus you know, allowing that UGC content to work well in other markets? Or how do you think approaching that? Because it seems like something that would be really hard to scale, you know, ordering yeah. a bunch of things all the time from like every market in the US. How do, how do you think about creating those campaigns? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With hundreds of thousands of restaurants on the platform, we indeed have uh, constrained resources to do yeah. these photos. We can't, we can't do all of them uh, next month. So, so we, we, we have to be somewhat thoughtful on, on prioritizing these. Um, well, if, a few things came to mind for being able to select the right restaurants to do this in and sort of the right markets. Um, first is conversion. Mm -hmm. If consumers land on the menu and end up buying stuff anyway, well, that's cool. I guess they don't need the photos. Mm -hmm. If on the other hand, conversion isn't amazing, but the number of visitors to the menu page is super high, hey, this might be an opportunity to actually add some photos and improve that conversion. So uh, by, by, by digging into the data and uh, looking, about, look at, looking at where the majority of the incremental impact can be, uh, we, we developed this framework for allocating this constrained resource, which ended up effectively being an investment of marketing dollars into a channel that's sort of marketing, but sort of not. Is it product? Is it operations? I have no idea. It's something. All the above. Right? So how do you think about, you mentioned incrementality quite a bit. How do you think about that um, yeah, throughout your organization when developing these experiments and seeing what works and what doesn't work? Sure. Um, first, if you don't mind, allow me to define it as, yes, as, as I think that that's super important. Incrementality to me is uh, what would have happened anyway if you didn't do your glorious marketing campaign or this amazing product improvement that, uh, that, that, that you just rolled out. And this is a difficult question because... Uh, um, it's really tempting to attribute the entirety of the success or entirety of what's happening during a campaign to the campaign. And let me give you some intuition behind this, right? Let's say, let's say you go to, I don't know, gap.com or something like that. And you see a, you see a banner in there that says 10% uh, um, off. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously a lot of people are going to click that banner and a lot of people are going to use that coupon to get 10% off of their transaction. The key question, though, is what portion of those people would have transacted anyway? Yeah, if they went there directly. They exactly. Would it is have. Clear, yeah, it's clearly not zero because, you know, before you launched that awesome 10% off coupon, some people were buying jeans yesterday. Mm -hmm. 
So being able to, with confidence, judge what, what that incremental behavior is and what is the incremental CAC and incremental LTV is super important. And um, sort of simple back of the napkin as to how you judge this is, let's say yesterday, 100 people bought those genes. Today, 110 people bought those genes. Uh, it's not a real A-B test, obviously. Um, but all 110 people used your 10% off coupon. Mm-hmm. You can wrongly suggest that all 110 converted because of your coupon, or you can look at the truth in the eye and realize that 110 used the coupon, but 10 really only needed it. Do you think a lot of brands are missing this when they offer these discounts and um, maybe like unintended consequences that could come from it? Because I could see a lot of consumers, if they get used to you always having discounts, then they kind of just wait and they're like, I'm going to wait for that next 10% off coupon. And then they don't have a buyer at all. Yeah, it is super dangerous. I do think that in some industries, there is there, there's exactly that happening, right? We know of, uh, of, of uh, the right times during the year to buy a TV. So we don't yep. buy a TV until then. We know of the right time in the year to buy um, home improvement equipment. And we don't buy it until then. So exactly what you're describing is a real danger. And it's not just a danger of delaying the purchase, it's a danger of creating a permanently less profitable business. Imagine if uh, every Friday, Grubhub was to, let's say, give all our consumers three or $5 off. Um, not only our Thursday order is gonna be delayed because our consumers are gonna be like, hey, I don't really care when I get takeout. I'll cook one night and I'll get takeout the other night. Yep. They'll delay it until Friday, but those Friday orders are gonna be less profitable. So we permanently teach our consumer base, if we take that route, to uh, not only delay their orders, but to, but, 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 but to make them less profitable. That is, that is a real issue and something that you've got to be super careful um, with, which is why you must measure incrementality. Yeah, especially right now. I mean, you see so many people discounting everything. It's kind of scary to think, like, how are you going to come back when your entire, you know, everything on your store online is 80% off? Like, how do you come back from that? Oh, most definitely. Now, if you have physical inventory, the opportunity cost is not zero, mm-hmm. right? Um, l- let's say, l- let's say, if you're selling digital goods, for example, right? Let's say you're you're selling access to to let's say a song or 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 a book, right? Your your fixed costs in that situation, your cost of an action is fairly low, right? As opposed to if you have goods in the warehouse uh, and you aren't able to sell them there's very meaningful fixed costs for you that you need to deal with. So um, mm-hmm. it might be actually quite reasonable to be running these higher promotions, but um, if you are, you better be running it as a real A-B test. Yeah. And you better be able to confidently say that this is the true incrementality of this 80% off coupon. And that's the true value that I'm getting out of it from both not needing to keep these products in, in the warehouse, um, but also from just sheer revenue from the consumer. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have a good platform or way that you've set up uh, metrics and things like that to measure that incrementality in a way that's, you know, not really manual and the team can just kind of see how the campaigns and what they're doing is performing against each other? Yeah, in in lower funnel channels, uh, it is actually fairly easy to set up a platform for this, and and we have, and there are, there are tools that, that that you can use for it, right? Google Optimize, for example, or Optimizely, right? 
we have a combination of uh, in-house and, and these third-party tools to do product experimentation, for example. For things like CRM, uh, so couponing in the apps or issuing emails with coupons or push notifications, really good experimentation platforms don't exist off the shelf. Um, so we had to do some math ourselves. And uh, some of that math turned out to be fairly fine-tuned to Grubhub's needs. Here's what I mean by this. We're an LTV business. It's not just about the immediate transaction. It's about what happens after that transaction. Um, for, for example, if a consumer ends up converting at a higher rate, but then afterwards has a poor experience and doesn't come back, that actually is, is terrible, terrible, terrible. And your typical immediate conversion optimization tool would just look at the first part of this. Oh my God, they converted at a better rate. Great, yeah. awesome, <laughs> ship it. Yep. Right. So we had to build tools specifically designed to capture these long-term effects. Um, and we typically, typically uh, look at, at the results of these long-term activities over the context of a month. Right. So we need to see what happens to consumers for a meaningful amount of time to have high confidence uh, that, that it indeed is, is net beneficial or not. Of course, we're able to look at things fairly early. And if something is a terrible idea, we're able to kill it early. Mm -hmm. um, but in order to be able to confidently say what is the impact on the LTVs, we had to, we had to build tools, these in-house tools for, for um, many CRM things that, that, that we do today. And even then, it's just for lower funnel. It's just for CRM and product. Mm -hmm. How do you judge the incrementality of, uh, of, of, of TV versus billboards? That is a whole other super complicated story. Yeah. How do you think about, you know, the intersection between your CRM and your content management system and your actual commerce platform? How do you, you know, create a good environment where they all kind of interact together and people can kind of see a holistic view of everything that's going on? Yeah, great, great question. And I, I don't think I have a perfect answer for you other than enabling as many work streams for experimentation as are possible. That is allowing the CRM team to run experiments on their own without involving a bunch of product people, without involving a bunch of finance and analytics people. Similarly, allowing the front end or pricing optimization team to run experiments on their own and do sort of very specific price optimization experiments uh, just by themselves. The more work streams like this you have running in parallel, the more you're going to be able to learn as an organization per unit of time. Yeah, that, hey, that seems like a great answer to me. So it also seems like you would get a lot of, um, like you could have a customer with a negative experience, but it would be because of maybe the restaurant. And it seems like you guys would have a lot of insights into maybe how to help restaurants improve where it's like, hey, every time someone orders, you know, this thing of sushi, you always forget the wasabi and man, is that making people upset? <laughs> like, do you ever send that data back to restaurants to kind of improve either, you know, their products as in their food or the customer experience or anything like that? Most definitely you hit the nail on the head. We are in a really unique position of knowing not just um, who the people were, when they placed the orders uh, at, at your restaurant, but knowing exactly what they ordered. Mm -hmm. So we can see exactly that pattern, right? So we can tell you that on Tuesday night, the reviews for, for, for people ordering sushi are actually worse than on any other night. Uh, and we can, we can train, uh, we, 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 we can help you see that so that you can train the person that's working on Tuesday night, right? Oh, These good. kind of insights. Yeah, totally. Um, uh, these kind of insights are exactly what we believe is 
what is something that we can uniquely provide to our restaurant partners besides demand. Of course, they come to us because they're interested in demand, particularly now. But we can do more. And we've been building a lot of systems specifically about that that are effectively, you can think of this as uh, recommendation systems in, in, in the grand scheme of the word of giving recommendations to the restaurants about how they can run the totality of their business more efficiently. Yeah, it seems like that could be a whole different business for you guys to also operate. Uh, it's, quite, it's quite synergistic in our minds, right? Because if we're able to make our restaurants more successful, it actually makes us more successful in turn. Mm-hmm. Because those consumers who are placing orders and are not getting any wasabi with their sushi, they are ultimately not happy with Grubhub. We yeah. want them to have an amazing experience. So uh, whether, w- whether the restaurant wins just on Grubhub or throughout the totality of their experience, because let, let's face it, that restaurant might be serving other delivery platforms and soon enough, hopefully, dine in as well. That retraining is going to help the restaurant across the board. We actually very much welcome that. Yep. Because yep. that means that we're able to create the value, not just for our platform, but for the restaurant and, and increase the chance that this restaurant will ultimately be successful. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point, especially as a lot of brands right now are you know shifting quickly to the world of e-commerce and trying to figure out how to sell online. There's going to be an, a lot of new touch points that they maybe aren't anticipating that could actually hurt the consumer experience. You know, if you've got, you know, the uh, UPS guy throwing your box over the fence and it's getting crushed. Yeah. There's a lot of things that actually you wouldn't even maybe think of as a brand of, you know, that's not my job when really everything from start to finish to delivery and afterwards and the follow-up, all of that's your job. And how do you think about controlling that experience with so many touch points? You are so right. The totality of this is 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 their job from the first ads that they see on TV to what shows up when they look on SEM or on, on paid social and discover your brand there to the first purchase experience, to the interaction with the UPS guy, to the interaction with customer service. All of that in totality is what the brand relationship really is, what the product really is. And as marketers, we can't just care about the ads. As product people, we can't just care about the bits installed on the phone because they, in, in, in their, their separation, they don't particularly matter. And as you saw from my story with the photos, that, 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 that really was quite profound to me, right? We kept looking for a solve to get more, more customers and more sales through marketing. And that solve wasn't there at all. The most efficient solve was far outside. Yeah. Such a good reminder for all brands to think about that, like you said, totality of the process. So because you have a software engineering background, I feel like I'm allowed to ask you tech questions. (laughs) I saw on your, um, you guys have a blog on Medium or your engineering staff does, and they were talking about how they were creating discount codes using crypto. And it made me wonder what other kind of technologies are you all experimenting with or seeing success? Or how did you think about, you know, running the platform that Grubhub's built on now? Sure. Um, well, a few things are super important. One is having a scalable platform that can withstand demand mm-hmm. and that can withstand massive spikes in demand. Um, as luck would have it, most people in Chicago want to get dinner approximately at the same time. Yes, who knew? Uh, right? Uh, what a pain in the butt. We have been trying to convince him to kind of, you know, maybe come a different, no. Um, come on, three o'clock's your time. Come on. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like your, your dinner delivery window. No, uh, which of course creates formidable demand 
uh, not just on 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 the services in the back end of our systems, but a formidable demand on um, on our logistics network. And a lot of our work goes into being able to spike in response to um, to, to customer demand. Let me give you one um, one intuitive example of this. Outside of COVID, before COVID, when rain would start during dinner hours, demand would massively spike. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, we're supposed to magically materialize a lot of drivers on the road doing deliveries. Um, Being able to do so technically, and when I say magically materialize, I'm of course referring to creating incentives and creating appropriate communication channels with our drivers so that they actually want to get on the road. So a, a lot of our, our engineering work has to do with uh, how we were talking about in the, in the beginning, balancing the three sides of the network and being able to respond to either a massive spike in demand or respond to a, a um, set, of, set of orders that were placed in a specific part of the city on the logistics side mm-hmm. or respond to an onboarding of an enormous partner like a Shake Shack or Sweetgreen yep. or Taco Bell with their own unique needs. Remember, we work with, uh, w- with such a variety of, of, of restaurants, right? Uh, and we do point of sale integrations with a variety of, of uh, our enterprise customers, which of course means that we have to have nimble systems that are able to onboard those same customers and they have to be resilient as well. So a lot, a lot of our work has to do with both scale and being able to deal with these spikes. Got it. Any favorite pieces of tech that you guys are implementing or trying out right now to help with those large spikes in demand or, you know, where you guys think the future is headed that you're kind of preparing for? Favorite pieces of tech. I'm going to pick marketing tech. Uh, Braze has been, has been an outstanding tool for our marketing teams. Uh, what, what we've discovered is it effectively enabled a whole work stream of experimentation for our CRM teams where they're able to run pretty sophisticated experiments completely independently from engineering, which increased our velocity of experimentation. That's awesome. I'll have to check that out. So to zoom out a little bit, 30,000 foot level, what kind of disruptions do you see coming in the world of e-commerce? What's on your radar right now? And it doesn't have to be for a Grubhub. It can just be in general. I think that the disruption is already here um, where over these, these past couple of months, we've seen the portion of online transactions and portion of consumers who have tried buying things online just catapult through the roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of, those, all of those new consumers, let's face it, my 90-year-old grandmother is using Zoom now. Yeah. Um, all, of, all of those consumers are a new opportunity. They have very different expectations. Uh, they don't yet know much about your brand. So being able to understand this newly online wave and heightened expectations of the consumers that already already have been online, but perhaps not as as active with with your service, right? Um, Those, I think, are super important. So this, this to me, takes us back to velocity of experimentation being more important now than ever. That is truly learning from your customers, observing them, creating experiments, measuring, and getting a feedback loop back from them so that you're able to focus and find the one thing that you can improve to make the whole story better. Maybe 
photos. Maybe it's something else. Yeah, I love that. It definitely seems like with these new people coming online, you have to have a bunch of different tactics to kind of meet them wherever they are. And the ones that, you know, have been working for the past year might only work for a subset of the people because you have, you know, 50% more people that you need to kind of market to or develop a platform for. And it's going to be very different with how you um, yeah, approach those new consumers than what you've been used to. Exactly. All right. So we're about to jump into the lightning round. Any higher level thoughts, Alex, that you want to share before we do so? If you're able to structure your organizational incentives to focus on learning and feedback loops, I think now you're going to see an even bigger reward for it uh, in the form of market share, in the form of growth, in the form of being able to adapt uh, to, to, to the world around you and leapfrogging the competition. Yeah, completely agree. All right. So the lightning round brought to you by our friends at Salesforce Commerce Cloud. It's a fun and easy quick round of questions where you have a minute or less to answer. Mm. Are you excited and ready, Alex? Very scared. <laughs> dun, dun. All right. First one. If you were starting a podcast, what would it be about and who would be your first guest? Whoa, what a fascinating <laughs> question. What a fascinating question. Um, I am obsessed with all things culture um, and and how do you how do you actually create the right incentives for a, a technology slash marketing organization? Uh, mm-hmm. I love Simon Sinek. Uh, yep. he is outright amazing. And I, I, I learned a ton from reading him. I probably would try to get him. And if I can't, I'd get one of my former mentors in there as a consolation prize. Oh, that sounds good. I would listen. Mm-hmm. I would be your first listener and I would give you a five-star review. Oh my God. You got, thank you. got me at least. <laughs> What's up <laughs> next on your reading list? Mm, next on my reading list, I am reading Russian sci-fi novels these days as a means of escaping from a tiny one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> Any good ones that uh, we should check out? Ah, oh, I'm actually reading them in Russian, so I don't know. I was going to say, unless they're in them. Russian, then maybe I don't know if I'll be able to uh, learn Russian quick enough to read it. Oopsie, oopsie. I do have a few people at my work who've been reading Tolstoy before um, the, the the whole COVID situation started. I don't know if I'd recommend it now. Tolstoy yeah. does darkness extremely well. We have enough darkness around us now. That is true. Yeah, maybe not. All right. Well, what thing do you normally buy at a store that now you're just going to buy online after everything with COVID? Ooh, what a great question. Only online now. I used to... Actually, a lot of my electronics, I used to come to the store and look at them and experiment with them. And I have a feeling that I'm never doing that again. I used to come to a Best Buy and just sort of try to look at different mice and monitors and all that. And I got a new laptop and a new mouse online. And I really like them. And I really like the experience. And I was unafraid of returning them. So that's it. Online I go. Yeah, I completely agree, especially as a lot of these companies are making the return experience a lot more seamless. I could, yeah, completely see the same thing happening. Just buy things and test it out and send it back if you don't like it. I was just chatting with a with a colleague about this uh, 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 exact same thing with, with uh, returns around fashion. I think there's a lot of innovation to be had with oh, removing yeah. the fear uh, in, in, in fashion through that. Yep, completely agree, except I could see them having to now figure out a way to resell those items in a way that proves that they've kind of been quarantined and disinfected and, 
Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day of like, man, that's tricky, especially for secondhand marketplaces to try and prove to the customer that these items are clean and good to go and you can buy them. I agree. Solvable, I think, but I agree. Solvable. All right. So the last final question, what's up next for e-commerce professionals? I think we're going through a time when uh, from being on the early adopter, early majority demand for, for most of the brands, we become the critical source of revenue for every single brand. And if you, if you think that your company was going through a digital transformation and is now trying to make, make digital just a, sort of a better channel, uh, hold on to your seats because it's now the only channel and the majority channel. So uh, the demand for expertise in our area is increasing very rapidly. And the demand for learning in our area is also increasing rapidly. So I think this is a wonderful time to be in e-commerce. I think this is a wonderful time to be learning and um, doubling down on, on e-commerce. So I'm excited for all of us to be right at the center of this, of this transformation. I love that. Love the positivity. And yeah, it's definitely an exciting time to be alive and experiment and yeah, try new things. Well, this has been a blast, Alex. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I know this is your second appearance on a mission uh, podcast. So yeah, we're so thankful that you came back and joined us again. Stephanie, thank you very much for inviting me. All right, talk to you later. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.